I mean, I do. I, I share this paranoia that sometimes I'm like, okay, so instead of conforming, now I'm supposed to be an individual. And then I get stuck in this, like, supposed to? Who the fuck tells me I got to supposed to be anything? Like, that's what I these people are rebelling against. That's that's the whole, like, anti-conformist thing in the first place. Like, let's all be individual. And then there's all this pressure to be individual. And it creates the same sort of competition for who's the most unique. What up, y'all? Um, that's kind of rhetorical. I know what's up. I've been paying attention. Um, my name is Wilton Zachary Cloud, and welcome to Cloud Kaleidoscope, episode 17, Pendulum Swing. Um, this episode is a check-in with Gina. Um, I got her into the lair for this conversation before the world went crazy. Um, so if you're wondering why... We're not talking about that. That's why. What we do talk about is our usual sort of anything and everything, including previewing for new podcasts that uh, you will never hear. So that's something to look forward to, except that it's happening right now. I will catch back up with you afterwards, and we will break down some other shit. All right. idea to split the sound wave into stereo to make it more like the way that we hear things in the real world i imagine <laughs> i mean and we could probably get super deep and nerdy into it and figure out like the history of like um i remember hearing something on npr once about the history of sound engineering actually came about good a contribution no Thank i know you. right useful useful <laughs> Sorry. Like, it was about radios, and yeah, I don't remember any of the details. I just remember there's a source. I would say Google and NPR for all you <laughs> listeners out there who might be interested in this project Zach has laid out, but are dismayed at my own lack of detailed knowledge to provide in this juncture. I think you're a complete psychopath. <laughs> no, I just really love public broadcasting, and I like to give them a plug anytime I can. Something like this, I would say you're much better off just going to the wiki page on it. <laughs> it will give you a good enough overview of the uncontended facts of the situation, and you can move on with the rest of your life. True. <laughs> I, I, my aesthetic appreciates the particular package 
that public broadcasting puts around the bare facts. There's often context and nuance. Poetry. Sometimes. Oh. I think also, like, because my parents played public broadcasting, like, all the time as I was growing up, like, that's just the way my brainwaves are wired. So, of course, I like it because it's what I was raised with. Yeah, I mean, I've listened to a shit ton of it, but it wasn't because I grew up with it by any means. I didn't really have reliable access to radio all that often, unless it was the most mainstream of the mainstream. Weren't you in a college town? Yeah, but I um didn't actually live inside of it until, you know, late teens. So, though the college had a college radio station, which... You know, looking back, I was just thinking about recently, like, what a gift it is to have your adolescence in a place with a college radio station. Yeah. You know, the availability of music that you wouldn't otherwise have been exposed to. You would otherwise have needed somebody, some sort of musical Sherpa guiding you through the shit that isn't being pushed on you. A different flavor than the commercial radio station. But yeah, but I didn't have that growing up 20 miles outside of fucking Tallahassee. You had none of that. You know what I mean? The radio did not... I mean, the college radio did not extend sure. much beyond the city limits. Lo-fi. Uh, but yeah, but once I had it, I mean, what a, an extreme gift to to have that available. What do you remember? Share us a memory of something that you discovered through college radio that was like foundational or like sticks out in your brain. That's a really easy one, actually. I was just thinking about this the other day is uh, Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy. Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy. Yep. I I plead ignorance. So perhaps it's not the best idea to name your band after a tongue twister, but... um, Sally sells seashells by the seashore. It was a two-piece in the early 90s out of San Francisco that kind of merged hip-hop and industrial sounds. I... Loved it, and it was like a real early sort of very conscious when the MC is talking about Hong Kong being given back to China. You know what I mean? Or <laughs> right the complex racial history of the United States. You know, that's a, a certain of- type of catnip for me. I like. I, I've always loved that sort of conscious hip hop subgenre. Um, it, they only made one album. The Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy, unless you count the William S. Burroughs uh, collab. <laughs> they, they did a collaboration with William Burroughs? Yeah, where they had readings of uh, him doing readings of uh, his poems over the soundscapes that they created. Nice! So yeah, and I would not have, I mean, I totally found them very specifically because of V89, the college radio station in Tallahassee. Um the MC of the Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy was Michael Franti, who you might otherwise know as the lead of Spearhead. That's a name I know. Yeah. Michael Franti's a big deal. Yeah. And this was his before he was Michael Franti yeah. thing. Yeah. You knew him when. Right. I discovered Ska through our college radio at the college I went to. Right on. And it was like this whole new sound to me. Like, I'd never heard anything like that before. I was like... This is, and it wasn't out of this world because Sky is very earthy at its core. It's very, but it's also kind of party and 
I don't know. It was the perfect thing for me to find as a new thing in my world in college. It was fun and it was upbeat and I know you, you think I'm crazy. You, you don't agree with my descriptions of ska at all. This is not how you would describe the genre. I, I wasn't. That wasn't my, my reaction was not to that. It was the fact that I had the fan on this whole time, which will be complicated to address, <laughs> but not impossible. Zach's like rolling his eyes over here as I'm talking about Mostly my discovery of ska. And I'm like. <sighs> See, what was I just saying earlier at dinner? Dance like no one's watching. <laughs> no one gives a shit about you, which is the other way of saying it. Why are we so stuck in this notion that people care about us? Like that's a basic kind of thing about so society, about society. Like because it's what we care about. Jesus, it's just a whole big projection. Right. Sidebars in psychology brought to you by Zach and Gina. <laughs> that is an interesting piece of information, and it's totally counter to what like, um, like fashion industry advertising generated culture wants us to believe right like they sell this idea that you have to have the right look and that everybody's paying attention and that how you wear and what you wear is important and so you feel like you're like nipping at the heels of a great observation um the uh like the fashion industry i think like kind of exists based on the the acknowledgement that it's hard to get people's attention Right. And that like this what, is the example what they're that, about what they're about is grabbing it. So that's interesting then, as a preteen of the late eighties and teenager of the nineties. Did I say that right? Anyway, whatever. As a child of the eighties and nineties, I recall, and maybe this is just my own weird experience, but I recall this overwhelming perception that it mattered what I wore because everybody would notice and would judge you based on what you wore. And there were lectures about wearing the right clothes to the right restaurants, wearing the right clothes to prom, wearing the right clothes to a job interview, wearing the right clothes to the debate tournament. The cheerleaders had to wear certain outfits for certain game days. Like there were all these things about presentation that were important. And if you didn't do it the right way, you were on the outs. You were not part of the cool kids club or not part of the accepted or you wouldn't make it to the college you wanted or maybe it was just a particular place I grew up. I don't know. But it never occurred to me until recently that that's all a big lie. People aren't paying attention. Or do you think we've had a cultural shift in the last 20 years that people paid a lot more attention in the 80s and now in 2018 in Portland, Oregon, at least nobody gives a fuck. Wow, there's a lot there. <laughs> You're welcome. I, I was thinking You're that, welcome. <laughs> I was thinking that like uh you know it might well be that like the mid to late eighties were a specifically remarkably conforming time. Felt like that was really super important and you're right in the, in the, it was funny, like your use of the word cool, right? Which is like really the opposite of what cool really means or was or intended originally to mean or. Yeah, the whatever. cool kids were the ones who were the most uptight and the most wound up and the most like. Right. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, and so cool kind of like morphed into a synonym for popular. Right. You know what I mean? Which was really just sort of like a matter of, I don't know, appearance and savoir faire. And, uh, 
I think that was a very specific moment in time. And, you know, especially if you're talking mid to late 80s, maybe even early, I suppose, although there seems like new wave sort of gave a lot of leeway for people to to be self-expressive without being targeted. Um, but certainly by the early 90s, if you didn't feel the the you had the go ahead to be whatever you wanted to be and let your freak flag fly, then you just probably weren't just weren't paying. You attention. just weren't paying attention. I think, you know, by that time. No, there were freak flags flying in 1992 in Chicago. Right, exactly. Definitely. But 1988 in Eastern Washington. Right. Exactly. Not so much. Exactly. So it was a pretty repressive time, I think. Kind of oddly so. I don't know how you explain it. Kind of a sort of cultural reaction to the late 60s and bulk of the 70s. Some of the feminist analysis I read point to that, that um, there was a pendulum swing against free love and brawlessness and wild hair. And that as women went back to the workforce and got into professional career tracks, there was definitely that pressure to conform both in terms of professional wear and style and behavior. Um, I mean, the movies that I remember, The Brat Club, or what were they called? Rat Club? No. <laughs> the, the Brat Pack. You got it. God, I grew up with these kids, and now I can't even remember the label we assigned them. <laughs> well, the good news is you probably didn't have much to do with the, having assigned it to them. No. I mean, I didn't even really know at the time or realize that, you know, it was a reference to the Rat Pack in the first place. So they were, I had no cultural sort of like touchstones at all. With yeah, the rat pack, I remember so. the first time I heard that, I was like, why'd they give him that name? Right, right. Oh, well. Right. I mean, I certainly knew who Dean Martin and Sinatra and... Sammy Davis Jr. were at least, but uh, those were names that got bandied about. But they weren't at Christmas. Time. They were individual personalities who right. had association with each other that I knew. But they were just like television personalities that, like, like the whole concept of the Rat Pack. By the time I was consciously aware of pop culture, it was kind of just not talked about really anymore. Poor Joey Bishop, lost to time. Is he one of the <laughs> lesser known members? <laughs> yeah. He had his own, like, comedy or sketch show, I think, yeah. It's like the kid from uh, Karate Kid, Ralph Macchio. <laughs> you mean the lead? I mean, he was the lead in that one set of movies, and then, like, did he ever get to be anything else after that? <laughs> Meanwhile, like, Rob Lowe is in this, like, perpetual career skyrocket. <laughs> Dude, man, you just gotta be on that grind. I mean, sorry, I love you, Ralph O. I, I will always remember those movies. I still make wax on, wax off jokes because I'm an 80s kid. Anyway, what was my point with Rat Pack? <laughs> oh, that that the movies as either a reflection or generator of culture in the 80s definitely adopted that. You know, you got to grow up and put on the suit and go to work. The Rat Pack movies definitely had that theme that like high school was your last best year and then you were going to go out there and get stuck in some dread job. <laughs> you had to be a grown up and you had to conform. You had to climb the corporate ladder, get a car and a house and a job. And that was the image. I mean, I feel like most of the films that you're talking about, you know, especially the John Hughes filmography, uh, you know, largely deal with 
you know, middle class Midwesterners struggling to accept that the path that seems laid out for them, you know, which is why at the time, I mean, I, those films didn't really, I didn't really get them. You know what I mean? It didn't really, didn't really resonate with me. I, you know, have since developed great love for several of them, like Breakfast Club, first and foremost, but they certainly didn't reflect much of my world. I mean, Hollywood films have gotten a lot better at portraying something other than the Hollywood Hills. Well, I mean, that's the thing is that those John Hughes movies were very much a northern Midwestern sort of mm-hmm. phenomenon, you know what I mean? And you could see, you could sense like the cohesive, like shared universe, if you will, that they could have all existed in, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And um, that was a rarity at the time in mainstream film was the a sense of place that could translate as anything other than fakeness. Hmm. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. I never really, I mean, I just thought of it as kind of generic suburban America. I guess I didn't put a geographic location on it. Well, in a sense that is what it was. I mean, it was kind of just before it was really true that you could say like every bit of suburban America looks exactly the same as every other. Right. And it mm-hmm. was like, um, somewhat before the great corporate homogeneity of oh it was starting to happen then exactly there's some places like that in oregon still the dead ones i mean okay yeah (laughs) astoria's still got some of its own local culture astoria's got a nice like fisherman sea village feel to it it hasn't become all corporate and developed there's not a lot of land there to do suburb and it's a tiny town well not tiny by i'm babbling ignore me fair (laughs) this is what people do best ignore each other i'm sorry what this is what people do best (laughs) fuck you see this is part of why it feels alien to me to think that other people do this because i in my own self-centered world am keenly attuned to other people's reactions except when i'm not and it's this like glaring contrast i'm either paying too much attention to somebody or not at all yeah i think you'll find that a lot of what you're paying attention to with other people is what they might be thinking about you. Are you saying this about me personally or uh, are we generalizing people, people? Yeah. So one. we both worry what people are thinking about us, but we don't actually think about other people as a group. Correct. None of us are actually thinking about anybody else, but we're worrying about what other people are thinking about us. As a general statement, true. But that's a logical impossibility for sure. everybody No, it's just that your own personal paranoia is completely unfounded in fact. Accurate. Which, you know, hence why I find it oddly comforting a little (laughs) bit of information, as I said earlier. The world is not what you think it is. These are not the droids you're looking for. (laughs) Yeah. That's actually a really good reference. Yeah, good job, Gina. Shut up. Fuck you. (laughs) What? No, I was just thinking about it. Like, sometimes I make references that are kind of a stretch. Sometimes they're multi-layered. Sometimes they're pretty damn good. 
He's laughing at me now. See, I'm being paranoid. But he's laughing at me. Maybe he's really just laughing with me because I'm actually being funny. But no, I can't believe that about myself. Hmm. At least he's getting the brain endorphins from laughing. I should not care why. Yeah, right. Welcome to Social Anxiety Theater. <laughs> I'm your host today, Wilton Zachary Cloud. Oh. <laughs> It's cool. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, but on top of the idea that that time in particular was awfully regimented in terms of, you know, prescribing everyone's range of highly limited range of self-expression, right? And the very limited range that would be tolerated. Um, you know, and that was followed immediately by this whole like weird grunge thing that really hit it honestly just the right time for it to be in vogue to be hairy and a little bit unkempt. So A plus to whoever arranged that to be to hit right about the time I was nineteen. So yeah, that really worked. That out. really helped just that about the time really you were out. should have been shaving a lot and all of a sudden didn't have to. <laughs> yeah, and then never did again. Um <laughs> Then, um, you know, and then fast forward to now when the thing that people complain about is, you know, posing hipsters, right? And so here we are. The thing that is in vogue to complain about is people who don't actually have anything that's all that interesting about them pretending that they have interesting and quirky things about them, right? And that's what we're annoyed about. I think that's a vast improvement. The idea that people who really have no quirks whatsoever are anxious about that to the point that they manufacture quirks to pretend to have. You know, like, oh, how the fucking tables have turned, right? So that's what you think we're doing. <laughs> I mean, I do. I, I share this paranoia that sometimes I'm like, okay, so instead of conforming, now I'm supposed to be an individual. And then I get stuck in this, like supposed to who the fuck tells me i gotta supposed to be anything like that's what i these people are rebelling against that's that's the whole like anti-conformist thing in the first place like let's all be individual and then there's all this pressure to be individual and it creates the same sort of competition for who's the most unique right but i think that people who fall into that are missing the point in the first place right because at its core, the entire concept is that you're supposed to find something that is authentically true about yourself and express that without reservation. The problem is people who look inside and find nothing interesting about themselves at all and then have to figure out something to pretend to be interesting about them, right? But that doesn't change the fact that the idea at its core is supposed to be authenticity. And if you... Right, which is why the wannabe hipsters... Are that why they miss the mark entirely? Yes, even when they try, because they're not being authentic. Right? Because not trying is supposed to be the point, mm -hmm. right? And uh, and that gets back to the original concept of cool, right? You be you, right? I mean, cool meant not giving a shit what other people thought about you, right? Doing your own thing, not pretending that you didn't care, but actually just not caring, right? And you know, if the worst we can say about the current state of affairs is that people who aren't interesting are struggling to try to figure out ways to make people think that they are interesting. 
I mean, I'll take it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, at least it's a motivator for creativity. <laughs> Gets people thinking, maybe, hey, I want to put my stamp on the world. What am I interested in? I mean, I feel like I'm pretty well on the record here as saying that we all do do better and will do better the closer we get to everybody basically doing as they want, right? And that that will create a golden age of creativity and creation that would be hard to usher in in any other way. As long as it all doesn't get destroyed by the anarchists and anti-establishment violent activists who are also doing whatever the hell they want. Well, I mean, and that's where the dividing line that I've mentioned before is like, until it breaks your neighbor's leg or their right. picks their pocket, you know what I mean? So, sure, man, can I recommend a series of videos in which one pretends to have violent outbursts and uh, breaks a bunch of otherwise doomed for the junk heap stuff anyway? Um, you know, it seems like a potentially, you know, there's a Pareto sort of a principle operated here. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-mm. So the idea is that to get 80% of the effect that you're looking for, you have to do about 20% of the potential work that you could put into the project to get that last 20% of effectiveness. You have to do the remaining 80% of the available work. I, I had this experience at work yesterday. It just seems like you could get Six enough hour of your project. The substance of which was done in one hour and five hours of tweaking to get it right. Uh, Yeah. It's sort of like a, a perfect sort of elegant little bit of guidance in terms of not only managing how much you plan to put into something, but also managing your expectations for a project that you do push beyond the 20. You know what I mean? Like you're taking a chance that you're going to get to 60% and look back and only be at like, you know, <laughs> at 90 and be like, God damn it. <laughs> That first 80% came so easy. <laughs> diminishing returns. Ridiculously. There's a cliff, right? It's not even diminishing. It's like a drop off in your in your returns on your effort investment. And, you know, the beauty of it is, is that it's a concept that just applies just to things, you know, that you do like anything, like a project, like any effort, any sort of goal. Like doing the dishes. Sure, man. It's fast when you're just rinsing off the the silverware and throwing it into the dishwasher and like rinsing off the glasses and getting them in the tray and stuff like that. But then when you turn to the cooking pan and you have to scrub shit off before you get it into there, <laughs> then it starts to really fucking slow down. Right. <laughs> and then there's another pot on the stove <laughs> and then you discover the really dirty pot on the back burner. Exactly. It, it happens all the time. It's in, it's everywhere in your life. This little, this little uh, ratio, this Pareto ratio, as it were. So that's like a force working against the forces of creativity and individuality and expression. Sure. I mean, maybe it makes it a little less easy to make an idea, take an idea and make it a completed concept, right? Makes it a little easier to conform because you put that 20% effort in and you're most of the way there. And <laughs> you can make it like look or sound mediocrity or be like everybody else's nonsense you know? and then just put it out. Yeah. Keep going. Hey, man. Like with like, distinctions get blurred. It's certainly a philosophy. 
I mean, I don't know if it's a philosophy. I, I'm observing it as a phenomenon. I'm not. Well, I mean, like it's it. a philosophy of work product. There are people who do creative work who mm. very much, very publicly have said that their philosophy is to do a lot of work and to be two projects down the line by the time people have started talking about the one that they just completed. Not be fretting at all about how it's received, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And just to be keeping working. And there is a certain philosophy to that, you know, and there's like a, you know, a perhaps often misunderstood, uh, but um, a well-known concept of the, what is it, the 10,000 hour rule? It's the idea that if uh, you invest 10,000 hours in anything, then you'll be good at it. Mm. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, maybe if you purposely invest 10,000 hours in consciously working to become better at something, you can't improve. That is so funny because... But just spending 10,000 hours doing something over and over doesn't make you better. I heard an interview with the guy who created that concept and you know they asked him about how his concept had been received and his big reservation was exactly what you had just said exactly what you your immediate instinct when you first heard about it was which is it has to be purposeful practice it has to be intentional activity not rote you know what I, I mean? mean? Something you you're not going to be great at something just consci constantly practicing the same basic level drills or whatever. They right, you, you might, might get have. really good at that one thing that you're doing over and over and right. over again, but you're not going to get a mastery of the subject matter or right. become creative and able to solve problems. Right. So funny that you said that. I mean, what can I say? I'm a smart chica. Yeah, you nailed it. Wow, we're just pumping Gina's ego up left and right here. <laughs> Not complaining. I do. I dance this fine line between pride and paranoia. My paranoia pride poopy pants, I call it. Poo-poo. Full of pride and paranoia all mixed together. And it's all shit. Welcome back to the social anxiety happy hour. <laughs> you know, I will say, and I'm making fun of it here, but uh, I think it's great that the notion and concept of social anxiety and having anxiety has become much less stigmatized in 2018, 2017 than it was in 1998. We have come a long way in the openness with which little girls can say, I'm anxious about this situation. I need support. That wasn't a language that was available to us as little kids, or at least not to me. Like, anxiety was something that people who had nervous breakdowns had who were institutions with schizophrenia. You didn't have anxiety if you weren't super crazy criminal. At least that was my perception. I remember telling my mom, I don't need to go to therapy. I'm not crazy. Like... You don't have to be crazy. You don't even have to have a problem to benefit from therapy. And people are much more comfortable and open and it's out there and way more accepted to say, hey, I've got an anxiety problem. This is what I do to manage it. Now, granted, there's a lot of schmucks out there who are running around being snowflakes and saying I have this and that and this and that other condition and you all have to kiss my ass because of it and treat me like I'm special. I sound very harsh. That's, that's going to be very offensive and insulting. Oh. <laughs> oh, I was just hoping you'd just keep running, dude. 
I'm like cold open, cold open, cold open. Oh. Cold open. <laughs> um, sorry. No, no, to no, disappoint. No, cool. no, I like it. Uh, you know, I feel like ultimately the entire concept that each of us, the individual members of the group, have some sort of obligation to reinforce whatever social norms are or may exist or or to try to remake others in their image. I don't get it. I don't feel like that's appropriate at all. And like the world that is slowly revealing itself to us through all of this, as you put it, snowflake stuff, right? All of this acceptance of the, the simple truth that everybody has their own shit, right? And the recognition that when everybody, again, is their own authentic self, that we are a lot better off. <laughs> you know, that right. that is and, a and philosophy this- that is prevailing. That is a philosophy that we are seeing come about now. And of course, there's going to be a little bit of a pendulum swing. We, you, Anytime you go from a period of time where people find themselves in socially repressive situations and suddenly the seemingly the gates open and they're allowed to be whatever they want to be. There's going to be something that someone is going to identify as an excess, but only when we recognize that there really is no such thing as excess and we need to stop getting on each other's cases about bullshit. Well, everybody fucking settle down in the first place. So just chill out. Right. And then that's what a pendulum does. Right. And a pendulum is trying to reach a simple stasis point where it stops fucking moving, right? Where it gets a little bit closer and a little bit closer every iteration to something that is quiet and proper. It just stays and doesn't have to move anymore, right? And that's what the whole pendulum swing is for. But we have to accept that you're going to go back and forth for a little bit because that's what you have to do to get to that point. Well, and then, you know... Entropy says that even if or before you get to that point, some outside force is going to come in and knock it back again, give it more energy to keep swinging. I don't think that's what it says at all. (laughs) The universe is not designed to sit still. (laughs) I ain't sweating it. You know, the Earth will be consumed in a couple billion years anyway, so... I mean, the Earth is going to become unlivable for humans in a couple hundred years here. (laughs) Nihilist thoughts brought to you by... (laughs) I mean, I find the former, again, rather oddly comforting. Um, but why not the latter, then? Because <laughs> I can conceive of that. You know what I mean? Like, what do I care if the sun expands to the point where it fucking consumes the earth or at least burns it to the crisp to the point where we can never fucking, where no monument we could possibly make will we'll survive it? Um, that is going to happen. One day, that will happen. That's That's not an option. <laughs> I find that oddly comforting. You know what I mean? We, the, this entire thing is, is entirely temporary inherently. And exactly like all the Eastern religions tell you physical world is temporary because it is It's temporary. The it's- sun will consume it in a couple billion years. <laughs> Your own life force will consume itself in a couple dozen years. I mean, you won't have to watch it. i mean it is comforting and it it does but see for me then my next thought is but we're here now so we need to make the best of it and there are children 
who deserve blue skies. I'm into it. Yes, Mr. Progenitor. <laughs> Is that a fancy word for breeder? <laughs> Proof of concept. I'm stuck on this notion of a static ending point for the pendulum swinging. Yeah. For some reason, that does not seem attractive to me. Well, Nor do I think it would actually... Like, I get the laws of physics say a pendulum behaves that way. And so as an analogy to the way human social culture, or at least American 20th century social culture, has swung back and forth, it's fairly accurate, I think. I mean, like all analogies, you can certainly hammer it into place. I mean, like, in a way, you can kind of think of the static ending of the pendulum um, pendulum swing as, like, Star Trek The Next Generation, like, world, like we talked about before. Right. You know what I mean? Where everybody is equally upwardly mobile to the point that that matters anymore, and nobody really wants for anything, and there's no real drama, and humans are all kind of boring. Right. So um, they go out into the universe to find interesting things to fuck up. Yeah, to fight and fuck. Right. Um, so I kind of, doesn't that prove my point that once we get to status, we'll get bored with it and we'll go do things to push the entropy of the system. You can't breed jackasses completely out of the genome. (laughs) We got to have something else for them to do else away. You know what I mean? Like they're fucking up our utopia. You know, there would be like Star Trek era punks. (laughs) I mean, there would be problems, right? There's got to be. There have to be problems. People are problems. If you bred all the problems out of people, you would have a really boring world. So what is your problem with it? The idea that it's possible in the nature of social human social movements to ever find a static endpoint? I'm not going to make some kind of deterministic <laughs> prediction. But my sense is that human history is full of fluidity and conflict and strife and human nature is full of manifest destiny. Um, And that we'd be bored if we got it all figured out. And there would be some people who would want to go explore space or push the limits. And we would go do things that would create problems that would swing the pendulum back again in reaction to those outside forces. Or get lost in expansive power trip fantasies about post-breakdown of society, zombie apocalypse, survival scenarios. Or that. Right? I mean, that's my own personal favorite genre, but... I mean, but isn't that like the fixation on Walking Dead and stuff like that? It's about very much about, you know, that anxiety of having shit figured out and kind of being bored with it and like, what's wrong with the motherfucker with the shotgun being the one that calls the shots right you know right. I mean, that sort once of once you've dealt with the zombies <laughs> then you have to deal with each other and and the the crisis points become much more ridiculous because it is then it becomes an ego battle between individuals who are trying to stir shit up for their own narcissistic reasons because everybody's always only thinking about themselves right i can make this come full circle i mean i think you just did you nailed it <laughs> Because have you heard? Humans. Did you hear about people? I'm sorry, what? Did you hear about people? (laughs) Oh, oh, oh! (laughs) The G is for gullible. (laughs) At least I can laugh at myself. 
Most of the time. It's important. But also it's important to note that fallibility is a prerequisite for lovability. Aww. It's true. Vulnerability is a key ingredient of human connection. Um, I mean, I think Joseph Campbell put it best when he was talking about how the the hero that we recognize ourselves in is the best hero, and therefore that means the hero that is the most fallible. And that you can kind of experience that in the same way that the way that your heart melts for the puppy that falls down on its face as opposed to the puppy that otherwise on paper is just as cute but doesn't stumble at all, right? And it's like there's a difference in the way that your heart melts for those two fucking puppies, right? And so there's something about us that that leads us to find lovability in the fallible. I think it's the survival mothering instinct. I think it comes from the need to protect our own littles. I think it's because we think of ourselves as fallible and when things that remind us, us of ourselves because <laughs> reference narcissism reference paranoia <laughs> another full circle <laughs> yeah. yeah also Be- that because in our own minds we're especially fallible because we don't necessarily see the fallibility of others the way that they do in their own selves we see it best in our own self then because we think of ourselves that way when we see something else being especially fallible, then we recognize ourselves in it. Or at least that's the idea. <laughs> and thus ensuring our survival as a species, the weakest and most fallible amongst us get picked up and helped. And the ones who don't fall down just keep on looking cute. <laughs> and we all continue. Huh. Wow. That's a whole can of worms because normally I would think that the emphasis on the continuation of the species would normally imply the greater effort being spent on the ones that are most likely to survive and thrive in the future. And I mean, that I- is one argument. <laughs> yeah, well, or as William S. Burroughs says, avoid the fuck-ups. <laughs> you all know the type. Anything they have anything to do with, no matter how good it sounds, turns into a disaster. I've known a couple of those. They meant well, for the most part. Hey, man, they can't help it. They're fuck-ups. Doesn't mean you have to fucking hang out with them. True that. (laughs) I saw a meme the other day. It was a cute puppy that said something like... uh, uh oh god i can't even remember but it was something like if it's mean to you and you can't or if oh for every if it's a stressful situation and you can't either eat it or play with it welcome back to a special episode (laughs) gina describes memes (laughs) we're joining gina mid description for those who need a refresher i recommend pushing the rewind button 24 times on your podcaster so, like, if you can't play with it or eat it, then pee on it and walk away. Wow. Cute little puppy. It was so worth the walk. <laughs> I, I honestly, I just, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you having brought that to my attention. You're welcome. Yep. yep. Dude, but it's so true. And, like, it's something <laughs> I'm, like, coming to terms with. Like... <laughs> If you have a situation that you can't enjoy and that doesn't sustain you, then fucking leave it behind. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. For the most part, you really got to look out for yourself. 
because everybody else is too busy looking out for they self. I like the sort of mercenary self-help aspect of what we've morphed into. I gotta take care of me. That's right. That's right. Fuck y'all. I mean, and part of me really rails about that. <laughs> I'm like, no, that's like fundamentally unethical and counterproductive. <laughs> like, fuck y'all means society falls apart. We can't continue <laughs> if we don't care about the consequences of our actions on other people. You know, it goes back to what we were saying. Like, the mainstream really made it clear that I was not part of them. There's an aspect of me that is all like, again, why is it my job to try to reinforce some fucking bullshit societal norms that don't have any, like, I don't, where's my fucking check for reinforcing some of this bullshit, right? Like, why is this my job? It don't have any fucking thing to do to me. So... <laughs> that is one way out from under the tyranny of conformity. <laughs> definitely one way to go. Where's my check? <laughs> I mean, it's the does it help sustain you? Can you eat it? Can you play with it? Um, if not useful for your survival, then piss on it and walk away. I'm like the least memeomatic person in my circles like when do people have time to look for and find all these things while i'm at work there's a lot of people posting a lot of shit on facebook <laughs> i i am a terrible person when it comes to uh <laughs> lazy abouts i i think there is too much to be done and too much talent out there to be wasted just sitting around soaking up resources without contributing okay you have said lays about. What do you propose be done about this person? I don't think it's a policy solution that's called for so much as a social recognition of the value of creativity and providing resources for people to leverage their interests. What if they then still don't want to work? Well, yeah, no, there has to be a production expectation in order. It's like, and maybe that's the policy piece. Right, okay, so then how Expanded are you going to enforce programs. this production expectation? I don't know. Jeez. <laughs> it was just a germ of an idea. It's a concept. <laughs> yes, putting things into practice is difficult. And I mean, I, I think that ultimately what we would have gotten to was that you're going to spend more than it's worth to put that person to work. That, that person is going to attempt to shirk work as much as possible and that every attempt to force them into work is going to cost you as least as many right. person hours worth of work to enforce that edict upon them than you are getting out of them in the first place. Right. So you're going to have to have somebody standing over them, making sure that they dig the hole. Now you're paying two people to do the work of one person. <laughs> and doubling your odds that it'll get done. Well, there's that. I think this is why I said it's not so much a policy approach because there are implementation conundrums all over the place with implementing what is essentially a social norm or an ethical norm of everybody contributes. Right. Which doesn't really have anything to do with dollars of taxable income or number of chores done or, you know, widgets contributed to the stockpile. That's a fair thing to say. I mean, I think that our economy, our society's solution to these lazeabouts, as you put it, <laughs> uh, 
I'm going to be in so much trouble for that one. Is simply to uh, cross our fingers and hope that they manage to find themselves in one of the nooks and crannies of the economy where they can collect a paycheck that you can kind of squeak by on without having done doing very much. But they exist. Let's hope they find them. Touche. It's been real, Zach. Back at you, baby. Thank you very much. All right, then, that was the episode. That's it. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Cloud Kaleidoscope is recorded where the sun don't shine near Portland, Oregon. You can hear it on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. And contact us uh, over email at cloudkaleidoscopepodcast at gmail.com or get at me on social media at Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just search Cloud Kaleidoscope. So the outgoing music, I feel kind of an obvious pull this week. It has to be the Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy. And their album, Hypocrisy is the Greatest Luxury, uh, turned 25 this year. So why not? The track I picked is not one of their flashiest, but I think it is particularly relevant in our current moment. It's Water Pistol Man. And I think if you decode the lyrics just a little, you'll see that at its heart, it's a song about we as Americans focusing a little less attention on opportunities for foreign adventurism and maybe set about fixing some of the stuff that's wrong right here. And on that note, there is one more thing that I want to say. Her name was Heather Hare. She was murdered because she opposed Nazism and white supremacy. And she was a fucking hero. I'm going to leave you first with some of Susan Bro, Heather Hayer's mom's comments at Heather's memorial. And then we'll move into Water Pistol Man by Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy. Catch up with you next time. Bye, y'all. This could have, I could have said, Let, let's don't do this publicly. Let's have a small private funeral. But, you know, that's not who Heather was. Anybody who knew Heather said, yep, this is the way she had to go, big and large. Had to have the world involved because that's my child. She's just that way. Always has been and she will continue to be. Because here's the message. Although Heather was a caring and compassionate person, so are a lot of you. A lot of you go that extra mile. And I think the reason that what happened to Heather has struck a chord is because we know that what she did is achievable. We don't all have to die. We don't all have to sacrifice our lives. They tried to kill my child to shut her up. Well, guess what? You just magnified her.
here's what I want to happen. You ask me, what can I do? So many caring people. Pages of pages of pages of stuff I'm going through. I'm reading pages of pages of pages how she's touching the world. I want this to spread. I don't want this to die. This is just the beginning of Heather's legacy. This is not the end of Heather's legacy. You need to find in your heart that small spark of accountability. What is there that I can do to make the world a better place? What injustice do I see and want to turn away? I don't, I don't really want to get involved in that. I don't want to speak up. They'll be annoyed with me. My boss might think less of me. I don't care. You poke that finger at yourself like Heather would have done, and you make it happen. You take that extra step. You find a way to make a difference in the world. That's the only way we're going to carry Heather's spark through. So remember in your heart, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. And I want you to pay attention. Find what's wrong. Don't ignore it. Don't look the other way. You make a point to look at it and say to yourself, what can I do to make a difference? And that's how you're going to make my child's death worthwhile. I'd rather have my child, but by golly, if I got to give her up, we're going to make it count. Must it always a tug of love between friends and work? Hope to learn the meaning of the word jerk before it happens to a rope round the neck. Let's build a bigger telescope so that we can see things more up close, farther away from where we really are. I was up the whole night before reading books about places I probably never go. And those aren't good things to know about When I feel with my heart, I know in my mind I should say with my lips, but don't Does that make you feel upset? I should know that The power of one man seems like a small squirt When he aims at the flames of the whole earth But the fire starts at home Water pistol man, full of ammunition Squirting out fires on a worldwide mission But you do everything to stop to the flowers in your own backyard Water pistol man, full of ammunition Squirting out fires on a worldwide mission But you do everything to stop to the flowers in your own backyard